The Lord be with you. And with Bless the Lord who forgiveth all our sins. Heavenly Father, thy Son, Jesus Christ, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood that we may become partakers in him and he and us in an intimate, personal, and spiritual way. We pray that thou wouldst prepare our hearts to receive the Lord thy Son through word and sacrament. And may our hearts be truly thankful for this gift. And this we pray in his name, which is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you please be seated? We now move from baptism to Holy Eucharist. And um, one of the earliest church fathers, St. Ignatius of Antioch, he was writing in 107 AD, so at the end of the Apostolic Age. And he referred to the Holy Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. The medicine of immortality. We receive Jesus now and share in his crucified and risen life in that special way. And even now our bodies are being prepared for the resurrection on the last day. And so it is the medicine of immortality. And the fathers truly spoke with one mind on the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. Um, They truly believed that Christ was present in a very special way in the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine. And um, I'll try to remember next week to bring in just a few excerpts from, um, from the, the church fathers um, on that. However, I do wish to just take a look here. Um, if you go to page three in our worship booklet... A few things regarding the, the Eucharist. Firstly, from the scriptures themselves. Remember that at the beginning of the Lord's Passion, he begins by instituting the sacrament of his body and blood. And then on the day of resurrection, in the story of the road to Emmaus, he breaks the bread with them. And so really... Uh, the Eucharist serves as bookends, in a sense, of those sacred three days. Um, Monday, Thursday, and Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection. So what importance the Lord placed on this great sacrament, that it begins his passion and uh, also is celebrated uh, as a proclamation uh, on the... Uh, on the Lord's Day, on the Day of Resurrection. So this first quote is from St. Luke, chapter 24, 32 and 35. Uh, It's an excerpt from the story of the road to Emmaus. And this is after Jesus had been with them. And they are now telling the, the story uh, what's, what's great about that, that story of the road to Emmaus is that um, as they are walking along in this journey, Jesus comes into their midst. And so there's the fellowship that we share, the gathering with Christ on the Lord's day. And then what does he do? He opens the scriptures to them. So there's the word. And then... He sits with them at table and he breaks the bread and that's when they recognize him. It's in the breaking of the bread. And so there you have the table, uh, the altar, the sacrament. And then they go and they uh, go in and share what had just happened with them. So there you have the sending forth. And so you have all four elements um, uh, what um, Robert E. Weber uh, refers to as the, the fourfold um, uh, gospel action, the gathering, the word, the table, and then the sending forth. And so they, the two disciples, uh, 
said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? So they bear witness that as they were walking, as Christ came into their midst, that as the word of God was open to them, that their hearts were burning within them. Then they told what had happened on the road, how they encountered the risen Christ, and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And so the risen Christ was revealed and made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And remember, this is on the Lord's Day, on, the, on Easter Day. From the fathers of the church, St. Justin Martyr, he died in 165 A.D. He's writing around 150 uh, A.D. And he says, For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, being incarnate, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. So it's very clear that um, Justin is saying, we have received from those before us, that is the apostles, that this is no ordinary or common bread. This is no ordinary or common wine. Rather, this is a partaking in the body and blood of Jesus. Then from uh, John Cozen, 17th century, uh, he's an Anglican writer, and he says, the body and blood of Christ are sacramentally united to the bread and wine so that Christ is truly given to the faithful. And yet it's not to be here considered with worldly reason, but by faith, resting on the words of the gospel. In the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the flesh of Christ is given together with the bread, and the blood of Christ together with the wine. All that remains is that we should, with faith and humility, admire this high and sacred mystery, which our tongue cannot sufficiently explain, nor our heart conceive. John Cozen captures the earlier patristic idea of the Eucharist, that um, it truly is a mystery. It is a sacrament where uh, God is at work in a special way to manifest his presence and his grace through the created order here in the elements of bread and wine, but that it truly is a mystery. It's not about trying to explain how Christ is present, right? Arguments over transubstantiation, consubstantiation, transcentiation, right? Um, you know, all these different uh, things, um, uh, virtualism. Um, uh, rather, that Christ is present in a special way, in the sacrament of his body and blood. This is no ordinary bread, no ordinary wine, but are partaking in Christ. If you now turn to the um, page 36 of our worship booklet, right at the bottom, we're going to look briefly at um, some more writings from uh, Justin Martyr. Now, his last name was not Martyr. <laughs> it's Justin the Martyr. He was martyred in Rome in 165 AD. He was writing, as I said, approximately around 150 AD. And his life goes back to the apostolic age itself. And so he is describing what Christian worship is on the Lord's Day since the very time of the apostles. Right? And what he says is that a bunch of like-minded people get together and they sing a lot of praise songs. And then there's a sermon, but no Bible reading. And then they go home. Well, that's not what he says at all. <laughs> okay. I was being facetious there. 
All right? It wasn't just a, a prayer and praise service. Okay? What he describes is what we know as the Mass, the Divine Liturgy, the Holy Eucharist. He says, For all that we receive, we bless the Maker of all things through his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Note the uh, early reference to the Trinity there. On the day which is called the Son's Day, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day, there is an assembly. That word assembly uh, in the Greek is ecclesia. It means the gathering of the, the community, the body of Christ, the church. Of all who live in the city, towns, or the country. And so that's the gathering that Robert E. Weber speaks of, the gathering, okay? Just as we gathered this morning to receive, uh, to celebrate the Holy Eucharist together, um, some came from the local town itself. Who here came from Marlborough? Okay, we have a handful. Who here came um, from the country somewhere, out in the country? Well, yeah, you know, Harvard, Bolton, yeah, I would say that. Who came from really far away? The ends of the earth. Okay, yeah. We won't say what town you're from. I'll, I'll get notices from people there. Um, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. So the people gather, the church gathers, ecclesia, and in the midst of the gathering, we have the word. It's in the fellowship of the gathered church that the word is proclaimed as much as time permits. When the reader has finished, the celebrant gives a discourse. That's the sermon. Now, a discourse sounds longer to me than a sermon. So for those of you who are upset how long I preach as it is, I could be, I start giving a discourse, okay? So, all right. So you have the gathering, ecclesia, within the fellowship, koinonia, of the community, the body of Christ. The word of God is proclaimed, and then the celebrant expounds upon the word of God, the sermon. The celebrant admonishing us and exhorting us to imitate these excellent examples. Then we all rise together and offer prayers, right? The prayers of the people, our thanksgivings, our petitions. Bread is brought and wine and water. So notice that from very early on, wine and, and water, okay? Uh, both blood and water flowed from the side of Christ when he was pierced. On the cross, the early church fathers tell us that um, this is symbolic of the fact that it is through the two great sacraments, water, holy baptism, his, his blood flowing from his body, his body and his blood, the sacrament of holy Eucharist, that we partake in uh, Jesus Christ crucified. And of course, to partake of him and in his death is to partake in his risen, his risen life. And so, and the water and wine also represent the coming together of the divinity and humanity in the one person of Jesus. So one person who is fully God and fully man apart from sin. A lot of things are from the very earliest days of the church and people don't realize it, like adding a little water here. Um, Ignatius of Antioch refers to the bishop as the right reverend father in God. So that title, the Right Reverend, okay, going all the way back to the Apostolic Age, okay. So bread is brought in wine and water, and the celebrant offers up prayers and thanksgiving. And that word thanksgiving in Greek is Eucharist, Eucharist. By the way, the letters C-H-R-I-S-T, Christ, those letters are in the word Eucharist. 
Therefore, Christ is in the Eucharist. Okay. It means thanksgiving. And the people assent with amen. That's the people's great amen at the end of the Eucharistic prayer. Then follows the distribution of the Eucharistic gifts and the partaking of them by all, and they are sent to the absent by the hands of the deacons. Uh, One thing, I'm a little sad we don't do it here. Um, We used to do it in the church where I was growing up, uh, is at the very end of the Mass, the deacons would come forward, and the priest would come down, and he would give them a pyx with the body of Christ in it, and then in the name of the whole community, they'd be blessed and sent forth to bring the Eucharist from that celebration to the sick on the Lord's Day. And they would turn, and out the doors they would go. And it was a powerful witness to this ancient practice that the deacons bring not only Christ, but our celebration to, to the sick. I know that when I was recovering, I asked that every Lord's Day that one of the clergy bring me Holy Communion. And not only did I feel uh, and believe in my heart that I was receiving Christ and was united with him in a special way through uh, word and sacrament, but I felt connected more fully to my church family as well by receiving that Eucharist. We hold our common assembly on the Son's Day, again Sunday, the Lord's Day, because it is, the fir- it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world the first creation. And on this day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead, thus a new creation in Jesus, one that is born not from the womb, but from the tomb. A new humanity uh, over which death is no longer the final word, but life and salvation. He appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them these things which we have handed on to you. And here, 2,000 years later, uh, just about, this morning we did the very thing that Justin Martyr described as Christian worship on the Lord's Day in his own day and going all the way back to the time of the apostles. This is why we offer the celebration of the Holy Eucharist on the Lord's Day and during the week as well. Now if you turn to page 16... We're going to look at the exhortation and the theology of the Eucharist from the exhortation. But before we continue, um, regarding the uh, scriptures, the writings of Justin Martyr, the two that we read, um, the description of the sacrament of Christ's body and blood and the description of the Mass itself, the Divine Liturgy, or um, John Cozen, etc., are there any questions or thoughts? Yes, Susan. Why can't we have ministers who go out to the sick? Yeah. Um, it, it really is just a matter of, of, of practicality um, in that uh, for us, the deacons and the priests do visit the sick regularly, but usually we, you know, we have fellowship and then we... we have teaching, and some of our deacons are here now, um, and so then they go out later in the day, or if they can't that day, they bring it on on, the, on another day. But you're right in the ideal and the witness that it, it brings. It's very powerful. Must it be an ordained deacon who goes? Uh, yes. Uh, in our tradition... I believe that it is um, the clergy only in our province who, um, and I may be wrong on this, but I don't think so, um, who are licensed by the bishop 
to bring the sacrament to the sick, although a layperson can go with them, which I think is kind of nice because then, you know, not only the clergy is present with the person, but someone from the church family is, is gathered there um, as well. So I do think that that's a, a, nice, a nice thing. Um, we do have uh, lay chalice bearers in our province with the permission of the bishop, but the norm is supposed to be that that's done when there's not enough clergy. And because uh, in some churches, lay people do anoint I don't find personally that that's in the scriptures, um, anointing. And so I have our clergy anoint and lay people join in for prayer and the laying on of hands for healing. So a lot of our clergy, if they're not doing something up here or in the back, anointing the, the sick and having lay persons join them uh, for that. I really believe, and this is a, a different topic, but that we had given away so many of the ministries of the deacon, uh, licensing the laity to do them, that it made me wonder how many of these people, men and women, are called actually to the diaconate and never knew it because they were simply licensed to do it. And uh, some people will say to me in my stance, well, you're taking away from the, lay, the, the ministry of the laity. And, I, and I'd say, no, I'm not. But I'm restoring the ministry of the diaconate uh, in, or helping to, at least locally, in the, in the church. But how many people are actually called to be deacons? You know? But I do think it's a powerful witness to send them forth. And I remember seeing them go right out the door of the church, and it, it was powerful. It was powerful. So thank you, Susan. Others? Oh. Okay. So let's look at the exhortation. <clears throat> Page 16. And I believe this is the exhortation um, from the Anglican service book. And so I, I want us to look at what the exhortation says theologically regarding Anglican uh, uh, belief in the Eucharist. What, what does it say? Beloved in the Lord, our Savior Christ, on the night before he suffered, so again at the beginning of his passion, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood. Now a sacrament is by definition from the ancient church an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And the two are connected so that the outward and visible sign becomes the vehicle through which the inward and spiritual grace is given. So in the Eucharist, what is the outward and visible sign? Bread and wine. And what is the inward and spiritual grace that we partake of when we partake of that consecrated bread and wine. The body and blood of Christ. The body, the very temple, the very person of Jesus, his blood, his very life. So the sacrament of his body and blood as a sign and pledge of his love. So the sacrament signifies, it's a sign. And a sign... I, at least this is how I learned it theologically, is different from a symbol. A symbol points beyond itself to a greater reality. A sign points beyond itself and participates in the greater reality towards which it points. Do you see the difference? So a symbol points beyond itself to a greater reality, but a sign actually not only points beyond itself to that greater reality, but it participates in that greater reality. So, for example, in the Eastern Christian tradition, an icon is a sign. In other words, it's not a symbol of an absence, but rather a sign of a presence. 
Okay, a priest, uh, Father Cheney, who was here today, his father, Father Milton Cheney, also a priest, taught me this. And he told me once he got it from someone else. And um, I don't remember who that was, but he said, a picture is a reminder of an absence. So I have a picture of my mom and dad, several of them actually in my house. And uh, it's a reminder of an absence. An icon is a reminder of a presence that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, right? That we belong to the body of Christ and that we are one body in paradise and on earth. So the sacrament is a sign and pledge of his love for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his death. Now that word remembrance, which is also used in um, the words of institution uh, do this in... Uh, do I need to separate you two? <laughs> it's my wife and my daughter. Okay. Um, uh, do this in remembrance of me. That Greek word is anamnesis. And what it means is a, a, a breaking, uh, something of the past, an event of the past breaking into the present, becoming a present reality for us in that moment, in that moment, okay? And so if you think of uh, Legos, everyone here played with Legos at one point or another in their life? Okay. Um, If you build a tower out of Legos and you dismember the tower... It's no longer a present reality for you. But if you remember the tower, it is now a present reality again. And so that's what the word anamnesis means. It doesn't mean simply memory or to recall fondly. It, It literally means for something of the past to break through into the present moment and to become a reality for us. So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance, anamnesis of me, he is saying that I, myself, my body and blood, may be present for you in that moment. Okay? So uh, it's a coming together um, in that uh, moment. Um, the Jews understood anamnesis. That's why when they celebrate the Seder meal, they don't use the past tense. They say, why is this night different from any other night? Not, why was that night, some 3,800 years ago, different from any other night? No, they believed that by God's presence, grace, that they actually were participants in salvation history, not simply recalling salvation history. Okay, so that's what remembrance means. It's a remembrance, an anamnesis of the sacrifice of his death. And what's that? But our salvation but God himself in the person of Jesus confronting sin and its consequence, suffering and death himself in the flesh. And this is, at least in part, what we are receiving when we receive Holy Communion. Christ's presence, his person, fully God, fully man, apart from sin, right in the midst of conquering sin and death. And that's what he's feeding us with. And for a spiritual sharing in his risen life. Now we must remember that the word spiritual, one second Dan, the word spiritual does not mean symbolism or fantasy. What is spiritual is is real. We believe that as our bodies are real, our souls are real. Right? We believe that as we see bread and wine, that Christ really is present in his body and blood. Right? So spiritual does not equal 
symbolism or fantasy. So when I sometimes say to friends, yes, we believe that Christ is present for us, but in a spiritual way, they say, oh, okay, so symbolic. And I say, no, no. Okay, Dan. Okay, so the question is, is every offering of the Mass, according to Roman Catholic theology, a re-sacrifice of Christ? Um, and uh, I know that this was the commonly held belief of the Roman Church for many centuries. Um, uh, where the scriptures are clear that the sacrifice of Christ happens once and for all time. But through remembrance becomes a present reality for us. That one sacrifice breaks into the moment, right? In fact, one of the 39 articles is actually going up against that false theology that uh, Christ is being re-sacrificed. In fact, our Eucharistic prayer, if I, I'll just flip to it for a second here, says... All glory be to thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So it's one time. Whether or not that is still the official position of the Church of Rome, um, I, I don't know. I would have to look it up in their catechism to, to see. But certainly that was the, the common belief, uh, was that each one was a re-sacrifice. We would find that as Anglicans, one, to be unbiblical, not supported by the scriptures. Two, to not be patristic, not upheld by the early church fathers. So, any other questions? Okay, then we'll continue with the, the exhortation. Okay, skipping down in that paragraph a little bit, it says, um, the last two full lines, but if we are to share rightly in the celebration of those holy mysteries, those holy sacraments, mysteries. In the Eastern Church, they refer to the sacraments as the mysteries of God. So if we are to share rightly, so what's that imply? You can share wrongly in them, right? So if we are to share rightly in those holy mysteries... And be nourished by that spiritual food, so be nourished for good by that spiritual food. We must remember the dignity of that holy sacrament. So there's, a, again, part of Anglican theology regarding the Eucharist is the extraordinary dignity of the sacrament. This is never something to be celebrated or uh, um, uh, administered or received casually. Okay, casually. Then from the scriptures, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to get into, uh, into those shortly, if we have time today. If not, then next week. Um. The, that, theo that biblical theology is now conveyed here in the exhortation. And the exhortation says, I therefore call upon you to consider how St. Paul exhor exhorts, thus the exhortation, all persons to prepare themselves carefully before eating of that bread and drinking of that cup. So where does he exhort us to do this? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 16 and following, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are to prepare carefully. One thing we do locally 
uh, here and in many Anglican churches throughout the world is I ask people health permitting to fast before receiving the body and blood of Jesus. So that the first thing you're doing is uh, to be fed that day is uh, feeding upon Christ himself through word and sacrament. So we must be prepared. Why? For as the benefit is great, so there is a benefit in receiving communion. If it was purely symbolic, it would be just pointing beyond itself to a benefit that you receive spiritually somewhere else. But there's a benefit here. Okay. And as I'll say again uh, later today or next week, um, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, so this is purely the Bible here, folks. The, uh, the cup that we bless, is it not a communion, in some translations a participation, in some translations a fellowship? And the word there is koinonia. It means a most intimate fellowship or communion or participation. And it has the same Greek root as the word uh, for the coming together of a husband and wife in, in sexual union, where they are no longer two, but one. And so if you think of baptism as the marriage spiritually to Christ, where we become a member of his church, his body, the bride, it's in the Eucharist in a sense that we are consummating, we are nourishing, we are nurturing, we are living out, we are realizing that spiritual union that we have in baptism with Christ. Okay? Um, he says, the, uh, so is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? And, you, you know, this isn't receptionism, where if you believe in your heart that it's Jesus, when you receive, then you're being spiritually fed with Jesus. Because Paul says, the cup that we bless, is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? Well, where do we bless the cup and where do we break the bread? On the altar, on the holy table. Right, so that's, that's biblical. He doesn't say the, the, the cup that you receive, is it not a koinonia? The bread that you receive, is it not a koinonia? He says, when we bless it, when we break it, is it not already a communion with the body and blood of Christ? Mike? I, I, the question is, how do many Protestants simply um, view it symbolically? That Christ feeds us spiritually with his word, and this is kind of an action that expresses the fact that we are fed spiritually or spiritually nourished with the word of God. Um, how do they get there if they're biblical scholars? Um, I'm sure there's someone who may be watching someday who's smarter than I am, but this would be my answer, is I think that they are clouded by a, still 500 years later, by a knee-jerk reaction against the, uh, the extremes of transubstantiation as a philosophical argument meant to explain the great mystery of how Christ is present. Uh, and the fact that in transubstantiation, bread and wine go to naught. They, they cease to exist and are replaced substantially, though the accidents, the characteristics of bread and wine remain the same. The substance is changed, transubstance, transubstantiation. So I think they're still reacting against that. I, I hope Christine won't mind me saying that in many ways when we were first dating and we were looking at Scripture, she, she was much more familiar with the scriptures in some ways than I was. Um, you know, she'd say, well, what about this verse? And I said, where is that? <laughs> I have to look it up, right? But there were so many things that I would point out, and she'd say, 
wow, I didn't, I've read this how many times, but I didn't, I've never seen it there. And I think it's because she was coming at the scriptures with a certain lens on. And so sometimes we don't see what's clearly there. So my answer is going to be that they, they're still coming at it with a, um, uh, from the point of uh, view of a knee-jerk reaction against um, going too far the other way. So that's why Anglicanism says, look, it's not about what Rome does or does not do. It's about what the scriptures say. And if there is some debate regarding what the scriptures say, then we look to the early church fathers and the ancient councils and creeds for clarification on, on matters. Um, and uh, so we would say, look, the scriptures are clear and the fathers are clear, speak with one mind and voice, that Christ is present in a special way. And so that's how we would come at it. So we, we're neither reacting uh, against or, or for something simply because it's Roman Catholicism, but rather what is biblical, what is patristic, what was received by the whole church, East and West, that is what we believe to be Catholic and therefore shall believe and profess and celebrate. Christine, you were going to add? Right. We, I would often hear the term spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. That's what matters, you know, spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. And so many Protestants and, and, and some evangelicals are missing what Christine was just saying, the, the, um, the implications of incarnational theology, that God manifests his presence, his grace, his love, his healing, his forgiveness, his truth, etc., not in opposition to the created order, not by going around the created order, but through the created order. And we see this throughout the Old and New Testament. But the ultimate example is the, incarnated, uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ himself, where Jesus manifests fully the presence, grace, mercy, truth, etc., of God. And so it's through the created order. So God uses water, an ancient symbol of, of, of life, uh, to be something far greater than a symbol now, but a sign of life. He uses ordinary common food, bread and wine, uh, but uses them in extraordinary ways. You know. um, and Christine, I remember, pointed out too many years ago, that, um, that it became easier for her to believe that Christ was present in a special way in the Eucharist when she remembered that um, w when she was a Protestant that she believed, or an evangelical Protestant, that she believed that she was a new creation in Christ. And yet, to look at her, she'd be no different than a non-Christian. And yet she truly believed that she was radically different than the non-Christian and didn't believe that just in a symbolic way. Gee, it's something nice to say that in Christ we have new, new life. And, you know, no, I am a new creation in Christ. So then if I can believe that about myself, can I believe that the bread and wine is a... Is, in a, in a sense, a new creation in partaking in, in, in Christ. So, does that, yeah. Okay, all right, so we'll continue. Um, so he goes on to say that we must examine our lives and conduct by the commandments of God before we uh, receive um, this, because... Um, uh, the danger is great if we receive it improperly, not recognizing the Lord's body. This is all from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 12. 
Judge yourselves, therefore, lest you be judged by the Lord. Examine your lives and conduct by the rule of God's commandment, that you may perceive wherein you have offended in what you have done or left undone, whether in thought, word, or deed. And acknowledge your sins before Almighty God with full purpose of amendment of life, being ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done by you to others. And also being ready to forgive those who have offended you in order that you yourselves may be forgiven. And then being reconciled with one another, come to the banquet of that most heavenly food. And there's another theology regarding the Eucharist that we'll get into shortly, that this is a banquet. This is something heavenly. This is not something ordinary that we, we are doing. And then it says, And if in your preparation you need help and counsel, then go and open your grief to a discreet and understanding priest. I always loved that to a discreet and understanding priest. First of all, um, he's not supposed to, by the seal of the confessional, blab it around, but you want to make sure he's a discreet priest. Um, But an understanding one, so don't go to a, a, a (laughs) you did what kind of guy, right? (laughs) Go to a discreet and understanding priest. Um, That you may receive the benefit of absolution and spiritual counsel and advice to the removal of scruple, that is the pain of scruples, and doubt the assurance of pardon, and that's what sacramental confession is. It's the assurance of pardon. It's objective rather than subjective. And the strengthening of your faith. By the way, every exhortation since the very first book of Common Prayer in 1549, including, I believe, the 1552, which was called the Protestant book, um, although it was only used for um, a number of months, has had this in there. And so when people say, oh, well, confession, private confession, that's just something the Roman Catholics do, or the Eastern Orthodox, we don't do that as Anglicans. Well, it's not compulsory, as it is in, in the Roman Church, but it has been recommended uh, under these conditions to everyone since the time of the English Reformation. Okay. And we have a number of people in Advent and Lent, in particular here in this church, that practice um, confession. Um, we only have 10 minutes, so I, I want to move on uh, from this, but uh, questions or, or comments? Then, then let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless. So it's a cup that's filled with blessing, God's blessing. Why? Because it is filled with the very life the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not, and in this the RSV says, participation. But again, that word there is koinonia, a most intimate communion, fellowship. In the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, an intimate fellowship and communion? In the body of Christ, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And Paul tells us elsewhere, that one bread is Christ himself. Christ himself. Um, Any questions about koinonia there? If I would, I would be happy if every Anglican, high church, low church, whatever, we're all supposed to be biblical, if this was our answer. So what do you people as Anglicans believe consider, you know, about Holy Communion? And our answer was 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup that we bless, the bread that we break, is a communion with the body and blood of Christ Jesus. Period. There it is, folks. That's the biblical answer right there. 
It's a communion with the body and blood of Jesus. Now, if you look at chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Well, isn't that interesting? He received it from the Lord. Scholars and early, the early church fathers will tell us he means one of two things here. Paul tells us that he had um, conversations with the risen Lord, that Jesus appeared to him, not just on the road to Damascus, and that he conveyed things, mysteries of the faith, that Paul was to convey to the church. Well, if it came from those conversations, how important must the sacrament of Christ's body and blood be? I mean, it's not like the risen Lord appears to you to chew the fat, right? You know, what's going on? I mean, right? He's telling you something that is very important. Just as he's ascending, he says, go forth and baptize. How important is that, that it's the last thing he tells us to do? So baptism in, in, in Eucharist, how important are they? Others say that what he means by this is that he received this teaching from the other apostles who received it from the Lord, and to receive it from them is to receive it from the Lord himself. Either way, how important is it that Paul would say, I received from the Lord what I now convey to you. So many of the earliest church fathers would say, we receive this from the apostles who received it from Christ, and Christ was sent by God the Father. Right? And so we have that continuity of the faith being revealed by God to us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So I received this from the Lord in order to pass it on to you that you may share it with your children and children's children. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, here's the fourfold action, to take, to bless or give thanks, to break, and to distribute. That's the fourfold action of the Eucharist which we also see in the road to Emmaus. So you have the, the, the gospel order of gathering, word, table, or what we would call sacrament, and the sending forth. And then you also have the fourfold action of the Eucharist, which is to take, bless, or give thanks, break, and distribute. Took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so many people, when I quote, but Jesus said, This is my body. This is my blood. They go, Ah, yes, but he said, Do this in remembrance of me. And I say, Exactly, because remembrance is anamnesis. For this is, if you remember in algebra, what's the word is mean? Equals. This is, this equals my body. This equals is my blood. When you do it, it will be an anamnesis. That is, you will become participants in this great mystery of salvation history. In the same way also, the cup after supper, and by the way, um, the, the, uh, I'll try to get the exact reference, but the, if, if what we believe we know regarding the Seder meal at that time is what we know, the one that was after supper, the third cup, was known as the cup of redemption. And in, uh, there's a place in the Old Testament, and I'll look it up, that refers to uh, the four in, in uh, cups, and with the cup of redemption, it says something I'm paraphrasing now, but I'll try to get it exactly for next week. Uh, uh, with outstretched arms, says the Lord, I shall redeem you. And of course, for us, we see the image of, of what? But the cross, outstretched arms. And that was the third cup, redemption. So it's important here that they're saying after supper. They're telling you which cup it was 
from the Seder meal that Jesus used to identify with uh, in, regarding his blood. Okay? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That is, our relationship with God is in Christ through baptism in the Eucharist. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is the new covenant. And what's the covenant? But the relationship between God and his people. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance, again, anamnesis of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there is a, a proclamation in the present of God's victory over sin and death by his son Jesus Christ on the cross in the flesh. Right. And remember, again, when a king makes a proclamation, as it's being proclaimed, that proclamation becomes the reality for the kingdom. Right? So again, that's the reality. When we proclaim it to the world, we are saying God himself in, in the person of his son, in Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, confronted and conquered sin and death. Now that's the reality right there. And that's the reality until he comes again. Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So you're not guilty of profaning the symbol of the body and blood of the Lord. If you receive it unworthily, what's your sin? It's a sin against the very body and blood of Jesus. So to treat the sacrament in such a disrespectful way is to treat Jesus in that same way. So the sin is very clear. It's not a sin against a powerful symbol. It's a sin against the body and blood of Jesus himself. Just like when Paul first encounters the risen Lord, when he was Saul, and, he, and he, uh, the Lord says to him, why are you persecuting me? Well, at that point, he had, had never met Jesus. And so who was he persecuting? The church. And yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because he is the groom and the church is his bride, and the groom is one with his bride. And people say, yeah, okay, I can see that. That the church is identified with Jesus. Well, here, the bread and wine is identified with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So see that it's still bread and wine, but it's also the body and blood of Christ. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now, discerning the body, some will say that that means discerning the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of his body and blood. Other scholars and fathers will tell us, no, it's discerning that, uh, that we are part of the body of Christ. This isn't just uh, a me and Jesus moment. It's a personal moment, but that we are part of the body of Christ being called as the bride to be one with her groom. I like both interpretations, so, you know. He eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. When's the last time a symbol killed anybody? Right? And yet Paul warns about the, remember, we are a body-soul creation, so what happens to us spiritually has a physical impact and vice versa. And so what he's saying is that 
the, the presence of God is so powerful here that to receive it in a worthy way and to understand the dignity of that sacrament is to receive great benefit. But to receive it in a negative way is to receive great detriment. And that this can also have a spiritual uh, and physical outcome as well. This is why the church, instead of arguing over the presence of Christ in the sacrament, the church should be pounding this about, it is Jesus, receive him with hearts that are prepared, that are prepared. Okay, we're going to end there. Um, I wanted to look at John 6 as well, but we're going to end there. Any last questions, thoughts, comments? Yes, uh, Diane, and then Susan. Well, not so much a foreshadowing. I was using it to say that people can really understand that in that particular verse, Jesus identifies himself with his church as one.